0: Science. 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 All right, we are back. Here's an item I really do need help on. Please, if you know something about this, send us a note at info at radioparallax.com. We should mention, I think, that we've had a few glitches with our website of late, and it has not been updated uh, for the past few weeks, but we do have archived on our website radioparallax.com over 100 programs that have aired here on kdvs and if you'd like to uh, go peruse the list which is now up please do so and uh, listen away but the item that i'm curious about is as follows the magnetic north pole located in canada for centuries has moved into international waters north of alaska according to geophysicists you know my impression of of where the magnetic North Pole was that it was you know pretty well embedded in northern Canada, how it has moved so far north that it's north and west that it's over Alaska and in international waters this is this is quite shocking to me and and this is to say nothing of the effect that it must be having on Santa, Mrs. Claus, and the elves. Alright, item coming out of, uh, I believe it is, uh, Discover Magazine, um, about the walnut. This article notes that the walnut tree is the plant version of the domestic dog or horse. It has been part of human life for millennia and is one of the most useful living things around. You'll find walnut trees near homes, churches, and pubs, which they note is a sure sign of a close relationship. Let me read a bit from the article. People plant them partly because of the shade their large bowl-like canopies offer, partly because of the delicious fruit they bear, and partly because they seem to ward off flies, probably due to toxic vapor emitted by the leaves. Now, it so happens I have a large and stately walnut tree, an English walnut grafted onto a, a, a California walnut. I guess it's a black walnut rootstock, which I believe all walnut trees in California are, it's a wonderful tree, although unfortunately every summer it is filled with squirrels eating walnuts and dropping shrapnel-like bits of walnut shell over the back lawn. Well, that's another story for another day. But, but I, I, I'm, I'm taken aback by this assertion that, it, that these walnut trees are emitting a toxic vapor. And I'm sure someone out there in our listening audience, one of you dear listeners, uh, knows something about this, being that UC Davis, of course, is a, is a premier agriculturally-oriented institution. So please inform us more about this, uh, this, this toxic vapor. The article notes that uh, a compound 5-hydroxy-1,4-naphthoquinone is toxic to a number of plant species and to aquatic life, and that apparently Chinese herbalists have long used walnut to get rid of intestinal parasites such as tapeworms. Be that as it may, it's noted that uh, the edible fruit of the walnut, better known as, you know, the nut (laughs) walnut to to you and I, is certainly beneficial to health. It's rich in antioxidants, rich in vitamins, and also omega-3 fatty acids. Last year, the United States Food and Drug Administration announced that eating a handful of walnuts a day could reduce the risk of coronary heart disease. All right. And and speaking of other good health news, uh, there was a tentative item in, in New Scientist magazine noting that a cheap and commonly used drug may seek out and kill the HIV viruses hiding in the bodies of people who are infected. This is a very small study based on, I think, three people only who'd been infected with the virus for a long time. But apparently, the use of valproic acid twice daily for three months, uh, uh, appeared to reduce the levels of HIV uh, 75% in these people. This is a very tentative uh, finding in, in a very small number of people, but it, but it is interesting and it, it sort of jogs my memory because when I was in medical school, I noted that my ph- pharmacology text um, was referring to valproic acid, which was coming online as an anti-seizure medicine, in very negative terms saying this was alleged to work, and it was, you know, it remains to be seen whether it would, would do any good. Extremely negative write-up. Of course, history has, um, has shown that uh, valproate's proven to be very effective as an anticonvulsant, and perhaps uh, history will repeat itself, and it'll prove to be effective as an antiviral agent as well. One can certainly hope so. All right, and from the the last word section of, of New Scientist magazine, we, we have the following. People, people write in questions and then, and then distinguished uh, scientists from around the globe attempt to answer them. And it's, it's very lively exchange at times, such as, I think, the following. Someone asked, if polar bears were transferred to Antarctica, could they survive? Question one. And second question, would penguins survive in the Arctic? The answer from C.M. Pond, Department of Biological Sciences, uh, the Open University, Buckinghamshire, UK, was... Polar bears would probably survive in the Antarctic and the southern ocean around it, but they could devastate the native wildlife. In the Arctic, polar bears feed mainly on seals, mainly young pups born on ice floes or beaches. Many of the differences in breeding habits between Arctic and Antarctic seals can be interpreted as adaptations to evading predation by bears. Polar bears would find plenty of fish eating mammals and birds around Antarctica. I'm I'm pretty sure that's a that's a that's a good answer. Yeah, the polar bear would probably make it, but it'd be just hell on wheels for the local wildlife. And per Hadrian Jeffs of Norfolk, UK, quote While as far as I know, no one has ever been stupid enough to introduce polar bears to the Antarctic, there have been at least two practical attempts to transport penguins to the Arctic. The original penguin was in fact the late. Great auk once found in vast numbers around the northern shores of the Atlantic. In fact, they were found here in California. The California Indians used auk feathers in, in uh, for many practical purposes. They were wiped out by hunting about a century ago, I believe. And so there is an ecological niche available to the penguin. So you know the penguin should make it. Uh, Mr. Jeffs goes on to write that. Uh, the ecological niches occupied by penguins in the south are filled by the auk family to the north, but the demise of the great auk in the mid-19th century at the hands of hungry whalers created not only a vacancy that one of the larger penguins might neatly slot into, but a potential economic demand for the penguins' fatty meat and protein-rich eggs. He goes on to note two attempts in the 1930s to, uh, to introduce penguins and noted that the outcome was unhappy for the experimenters, and most particularly for the penguins. Among those uh, whose fate were known, one king penguin was quickly dispatched by a local woman who thought it was some kind of demon. Mr. Jeff goes on to explain that it soon became obvious that the real reason why any attempt to fill the ecological gap left by the great auk was destined to fail for the reason that the niche was vacant in the first place. Such large seabirds could not happily coexist with the large number of predatory humans around. This reminds us of numerous Gary Larson Farsight cartoons. (laughs) One I think of of a polar bear with a beak strapped on him, sitting on an ice floe, and the penguin's going, Hey, now Dave's missing. Something's going on around here. It was, I believe it was that cartoon that prompted an angry uh, reader to uh, to write Gary Larson and point out that penguins and polar bears do not coexist. Polar bears are in the arctic, penguins are in the antarctic, which caused Mr. Larson to write him back and say, "Well, polar bears and penguins don't talk either. It's a cartoon." All right, in our final item from the day, which is from the unbelievable file from Harper's Magazine, the August issue, we have the following what was called Confession. Apparently a May 5th Fox News radio interview with Neil Horsley was conducted by Alan Colmes. Mr. Horsley runs the Nuremberg Files, a website that posts the home addresses of doctors who carry out abortions. Now, Horsley grew up on a farm with two mules, ten cows, and several chickens. The following is a verbatim transcript. Alan Colms. In an Esquire interview, you acknowledge having taken part in homosexual sex and bestiality in the 70s. Is that true? Neil Horsley. That's my point, Alan. I mean, just because it's in the news media, everybody jumps to believe it. But if I say the truth... Colmes, Is it true? Hey, Alan... If you want to accuse me of having sex when I was a fool, I did everything that crossed my mind that looked like it might feel good. You had sex with animals? As an active hedonist, absolutely, I was a fool. You had sex with animals. When you grow up on a farm in Georgia, your first girlfriend is a mule. I'm, I'm not so sure that's so. You didn't grow up on a farm in Georgia, did you? Are you suggesting that everybody who grows up on a farm in Georgia has a mule as a girlfriend? It's historically been the case. You people are so far removed from reality. I'll admit it, Neil. I'm a city boy. I don't know a lot about growing up on a farm. Well, hello. Welcome to Domestic Life on the Farm, Anchorman. Neil, there are a lot of people listening to you right now who live on farms, are raising kids on farms, who grew up on farms, and I don't think they're dating Elsie right now. The fact of the matter is, they don't know that you're experimenting with anything that moves when you're growing up. They're naive, and you know better. You know yourself that if it's warm and it's damp and it vibrates, you might in fact have sex with it. No, not me, thank you. No, thanks. Oh, come on. You never masturbated, Alan? That's not the issue. We're not talking about self-love. We're talking about love with objects that are a little bit different from human form. When a person's depraved and has nothing but his own sexual desire to guide him, he'll do anything. And you know it. Just give me that countryside. Anyway, we really have to get out of this program after that. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. It's been, as always, Radio Parallax. I'm your host, Douglas Everett. We'll see you next Thursday at five o'clock. And now, and I'm I'm sure he hates to this program after what we just ended with. Please stay tuned for Todd. Fresh, Fresh air. Time's you are my wife.